0: Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, as we come together this day to celebrate your victory through Jesus over death, so inspire our hearts with your Holy Spirit that we might join with those faithfully departed, giving you praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. What's the hardest thing that you've ever had to face? Think about it for a second. It'll be different for everybody. What's the hardest thing that you've had to face? Was it a task? Was it a situation? Was it a test? You know, in all of our lives, that's something different. But there's one unifying thing that we all face, or will face, and that's death. There's someone, however, who has faced it, stared it down, and won. I love the prayer in the Book of Common Prayer that uh, goes for the burial of the dead. We actually say it in the proper preface, which is the first part of communion. And we say, For to your faithful people, O Lord, life is not changed or life is changed, rather, not ended. And when our mortal body lies in death, there is prepared for us a dwelling place, eternal in the heavens. Isn't that beautiful imagery and beautiful truth in reality? Well, today we come to the ninth sermon on our series on the Apostles' Creed. And as God has orchestrated it, we're talking about the communion of saints here on all saints day what is the communion of saints anyway why is it such an important piece of our dogma why is it so important that this statement gets put into the baptismal creed into which all Christians are baptized because friends i think death is all around us turn on the news go Your site of preference on the internet. It's all over, right? Death, whether it's natural, whether it's tragic from disasters, or whether it's self inflicted from human foolishness and folly. Death is all over. You know, we as Americans live a strange tension of having death continually assaulting us from the news and yet fabricating a Potemkin village, a set around ourselves with which we isolate ourselves from the idea of death. We think to ourselves, that's what happens to those people out there. That doesn't happen to me. That doesn't happen to those that I love. And as a result, somehow we're surprised when death comes to us in our families. In those we love, in our friends, and those we care about. It seizes us, and oh my gosh, there's death. Our culture, while being full of death, somehow ignores it. And it doesn't make any sense. But as Christians, as members of the Church Catholic, we're not charged to ignore death, but rather to Deal with it in a real way, not in a morbid way, but in a realistic way. We're called, in a sense, to embrace death. The church is called, friends, to deal with realities, not sentimental pleasantries. We've all been to funerals where there's lots of nice flowery things said about death, right? oh, it's just the ship going into the wind, or it's just another change in life. It it doesn't really matter. But do you really believe that? Pardon my French, but that's bull crap. It's bullcrap. Death is a very real thing. Death is something that grabs us by the throat and slams us to the ground and says, you no longer have access to that person. Death is something that breaks apart relationships. It's something that's not part of God's original creation. It's something that's not meant to be. It's not our destiny as God would have it. And yet it is because of our sin. You know, we talk about people passing away. We try to dress it up. We use what I call funeral parlor sentimental theology, right? But none of that deals with death. It just kind of skirts the issue. Why is it that the church instead deals with death right on? We use black vestments or white vestments to show that this person's life truly mattered and that they'll be missed. Another part of the burial service in the Book of Common Prayer puts it this way. It's at the very opening. It doesn't skirt the issue at all. It says, in the midst of life, we are in death. From whom can we seek help? And then the answer, so beautiful and just as powerful, if not more so. From you, O Lord... From you, O Lord, who by our sins are justly angered, holy God, holy and mighty, holy and merciful Savior, deliver us not into the bitterness of eternal death. This is the way things stand. This is the truth about the matter. And you know, our culture thinks that it shows us reality. It says, don't pay attention to those things eternal. Pay attention to the here and now, the things you can touch and the things that you can see. But Jesus says, no, pay attention to the things eternal. Because that's what matters. Our Lord Jesus himself speaks of it in Matthew 28, 28, when he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Continuing with verse 32, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who's in heaven. Jesus isn't just saying this to be mean. Jesus isn't just saying this to uh, condemn us. We know from other places in Scripture that Jesus doesn't condemn us. But Jesus is saying this because he wants us to wake up. Wake up, he says. Don't pay attention to the people that can kill your body. Pay attention to the person who has the ability to save your soul or not. Namely, God. And our culture chooses to ignore that message repeatedly. But notice, if you don't face death head-on, there is no reality or hope. There's just avoidance. So in ignoring death, we actually take away hope. Our Lord Jesus literally, by contrast, takes death upon himself on the cross and it's so great that whereas death comes and devours everything and everybody else, Jesus faces death face to face and absorbs it into himself. He's the greater reality. He's more the truth. It's John Donne in his, poet, in his poetry, he's a, an Anglican poet and uh, priest, actually, at uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London back in the 1600s, I think it was. He wrote this. He said, Death, be not proud, though some have called thee mighty, dreadful. Why can he say that? Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, is more reality. It's more hope. It's a different way of living. And because of that reality, it ought to change the way we live our lives the way we interact with each other, the way we interact with God. You see, it makes no sense to read today's gospel with the eyes of this world. Think about that. The Beatitudes. You know, everybody thinks it's such a nice thing, the the, the Sermon on the Mount. But dig into it and put on the glasses of this world that says that only this matters. Blessed are the poor in spirit... Blessed are those who mourn, the meek, the hungry, the thirsty, who thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, the persecuted, the reviled or slandered. You know, if you didn't get it, that last line really gives you, blessed are you when they say all kinds of false things about you for my sake. In the context of a philosophy based on only this world and only the things that we can see and taste and touch, that is foolishness. It's foolishness. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying, your reality's all wrong. Your context is all wrong. And in my kingdom, These are the things that make you happy. But those things only make you happy in the context of being part of the kingdom of God. They only make you happy in the part of being part of God's kingdom. Why? Why could you be happy and be poor in spirit? Because you have your Lord. You might have nothing else, but you have him. Or with those who mourn, because you know you'll see that person again. Or with the meek. You know, we could dissect each one of them. That'd be a sermon series in itself. So I won't do that for you. But how is it that you can be happy, that you can be blessed by the Beatitudes, only by being part of the kingdom of God? It doesn't make sense otherwise. How do I know that? Well, did you ever see a book on the shelf at Barnes & Noble that said, Your poorest life now, or Self-actualization. Come and be persecuted, reviled, and scoffed. You don't see that, right? You don't see that. And yet that's what Jesus calls us to do as part of his kingdom. And how can Jesus say that? Because he knows that he's the biggest reality. Because he knows that he's beyond the fleeting things. This all pass away. Our culture says your best life now. Our Lord says embrace suffering and discomfort for me and my kingdom now and you'll truly be blessed and happy because you'll see God and you'll see his kingdom. And that, friends, is the promise that we hang on. That's the promise that we hang on for All Saints Day and for All Souls Day because Jesus has put himself forward and faced death for us and come through it alive. Look at the Revelation reading with me. What's the image that we get in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9? It's an image of God's kingdom being so much more real and so much grander than any of the kingdoms on this world. I'll just read part of it to you. This is in the bulletin on page 11, verse 9. after I looked, and behold... A great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. What's the image that we get there? Who's gathering before the throne of God? All nations. All peoples, all those that are found in Jesus, all those that are found to be part of the kingdom of God, all of creation gathers around who? Jesus Christ, the lamb upon his throne, who surpasses all, who is preeminent above all. The procession of the faithful to the kingdom is the true reality, not this petty and paltry world. That's why every year we sing that long litany at the beginning. We start at the beginning with Abraham, with what God has accomplished, and we go through it and we see how God has acted age after age in time and place. And then we jump to that Hebrews passage in Hebrews 11 where we're reminded of those that have gone before us and the penalties that they've paid for their faith. We do this every year because it's a reality check. It's a reality check. Do you notice as we get up to the front of the altar, as we get up to where those candles are on the Riridos, we start to pray for those very close to us, right? We're not praying for those distant people, for Abraham and Isaac and those folks, but no, we're praying for those that have gone before us. Those that we knew. Those that were faithful members of the church. Those who gave us the faith. Because they're part of that reality. They're part of that communion of saints. This is the reality that we've been brought into. And how does that change your life? Well, it changes everything because it changes your vantage point. All of a sudden, your priorities should start to shift. If you're not focusing on the things of this world, which are fleeting, but focusing on the things of the eternal world, everlastingly present, it should change what you structure your life into. And the Holy Spirit helps to guide that change. What does Paul say? He gives, it, he gives us the answer in Hebrews 12.1 on page 14 there. What does he say? He says, Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. What does that say? That we're to lay aside sin because those things which promise pleasure here and now are fleeting as well. And they won't make you happy. We're called to look to Jesus. Why? Because we're found clothed in him and it's only by his grace that we're able to enter into God's kingdom. There's justification. And thirdly, we're called to run the race knowing that Jesus has won. Run the race knowing that he's won. Change your vantage point. Change your outlook. Be assured that Christ has won the victory. And then go and do the things that the Holy Spirit's leading you to do, running the race. And death, all of a sudden, becomes not so important because it no longer has the final word. I'm not saying that as a Christian, we ignore death, referencing the beginning of the sermon. I'm saying that as a Christian, we have embraced it, know someone that's conquered it, and therefore don't have to live in fear of it, because indeed it's a change. And to finish John Donne's sonnet, Be not proud, O death. One short sleep past, and we shall wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. Death, thou shalt die. That's the good news. Of All Saints' Day. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the powerful news of the baptismal creed, of the creed that we'll say together on behalf of Mary as she enters into the fullness of the kingdom of God. You know, liturgically, that creed is said three times at least in your life it's said as you're baptized, it's said as you're confirmed. And it said, again, one more time, it said, as the priest goes around your casket and they carry your body from the church. Why is that? Because that's what matters. Because that's the eternal reality. Friends, let it be so in our day-to-day lives. What's the hardest thing you've ever had to face? I hope it isn't death. Because Jesus has faced it for you and won. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for All Saints Day. We thank you for the faithful departed who have so served you and brought your word to us. We cherish their memories and Lord, we join with them at your altar today. Looking forward to that reunion one day where we'll all be around giving you glory. Giving glory to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.